invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Gospel of Luke chapter 4. We've been going through the Gospel of Luke for a number of weeks now. Last week, we looked at Jesus' first recorded sermon, one in which he preached from Isaiah 61, which was a prophecy about the Messiah, a prophecy about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus made that extraordinary claim, if you remember. He, he, he rolled back up the scroll, he handed it to the attendant, and every eye was on him. And Jesus said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of that ancient prophecy. He claimed to be the Messiah. He's the one who will proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to the oppressed. And now Luke, what he's going going to do is for the next few chapters, show that Jesus actually backs up his words. Jesus actually does those things that he just preached about. And we're going to begin reading in Luke 4, verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst and came out of him, having done him no harm, they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now the sun was setting, and all those who who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to Him. And He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out, many out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! But He rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew He was the Christ. And when it was day, He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought Him and came to Him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep 
and let down your nets for a catch? Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners and other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed Him. Pray with me. Lord, we ask that You would come through the power of Your Spirit. Lord, that You would speak. We need to hear from You. People here don't need to hear from me. My words are death, Lord, but Your words are life. And we need life. This church needs life. So I ask that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, let Your words remain. And may they change us. And I pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Last week, Jesus, He preached at His hometown. And they rejected Him. And so He, he, he took off and He went to Capernaum where He also goes into a local synagogue and once again He begins preaching. But this time there's a much different reaction. The people are astonished. They're welcoming. They're receiving Nobody tries to throw him off a cliff. They want him to stay. They're astonished because Jesus actually spoke as one with authority. You see, he didn't have to quote other rabbis. He didn't have to do all these citations of of why he was correct. Jesus was a master of the law. He spoke as one who was a master, one who wrote the law. Who knew its inner workings? And the people were astonished at this. They were not used to this. They were used to their sermons being like research papers in which it just went and said, so-and-so rabbi said this, and -and so-and-so rabbi said this, and Jesus didn't do any of that. He would say things like, you've heard it said unto you, you shouldn't commit adultery. But I say to you that if a woman or if a man lusts after a woman and he has already committed adultery in his own heart, Jesus would appeal to Himself as the supreme authority. And it blew them away. And Jesus, He had the power to back up these words. One of the times, He's he's preaching in the synagogue and a demon, a demon-possessed man screams out. It actually says an unclean demon. And I keep reading that and think, why did they have to say unclean demon? As if there's clean demons out there. And and if there were, they'd be easier. But there's this there's this unclean demon screaming out. And Jesus puts an end to it. I, you need to understand that this wasn't just some kind of superstitious people who saw demons behind every tree or behind every rock or you know, behind every sickness. 
If that's what you think, you've got you to throw that out. They didn't think that at all. Demonic possession they saw as being very rare. There's not one instance of exorcism in the Old Testament. Not one. Uh, this was not something that was dominant in the, in the Jewish mindset here. And, and so what's happening here is very uncommon. What's going on is Jesus is causing this huge spiritual disturbance. His mere presence is. And things are happening. A demon crying out in the service then would be just like if one of you cried out being possessed in a service now. It would have the same kind of reaction. You would be terrified. You'd all look around. You'd all be in shock. I mean, some of you are scared if the person next to you raises her hands in worship. I mean, I can't even imagine if somebody were to get up screaming. You'd be terrified. This demon cries out. What have you to do with us? Which is an idiomatic phrase just meaning, why are you bothering us? Why are you bothering us? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Now it's interesting, yet yeah, I was going through Jewish exorcisms because on the rare, rare occasion that in that day that they would come across a demon-possessed man, they would call rabbis, they would call priests to exercise this demon, to, to get it out of this person. And there was elaborate rituals. They would go through these long incantations, they would, they would, uh, they would long prayers, they would do holy water. Uh, one of the ones I read, uh, it was quite funny, they would put a ring under the possessed person's nose, they would make them eat from this magic root, and they would put a bowl of water next to it, and they would say this incantation, and there would supposedly be a splash in the water as the demon jumped out and went into the water. And so you read all these stories, and you think, well, that's what these people were expecting if a possessed person got up. Jesus doesn't do any of that. I mean, Jesus, he goes, will you shut up and get out? That's it. Shut up. Get out. And just like that, the demon left and left the man unharmed. Before the demon said, if you come here to destroy us, and he's talking about me, him, him and the person he has possessed. Because to detach the two often meant death. If you come here to destroy us, and Jesus is like, no, shut up and get out. And the person's healed. Completely healed. And so if you think back to that sermon on Isaiah 61, the part about setting captives free, you can check. Yes, Jesus sets captives free. Sets people who have been in bondage to the devil. After this, Jesus goes to Simon's house, and I'm sure he's tired and he is wore out. Uh, On Sunday evenings, when, when I'm done with church and I finally get home, I'm exhausted. Anything that you guys, if you come up to me afterwards and you talk, it's great. I won't remember it. I enjoy talking to you, but I'm not going to remember our conversation. If, you, if we make a lunch appointment, if you don't see me pull out a day timer, write it down, it's not going to happen. I will not remember. Some of you are like, absolutely, I know. Because I'm exhausted and my mind, I'm just emotionally and physically and mentally tired. And Jesus, I'm sure after, after teaching, he goes back to Simon's house, but he sees a need. Simon's mother-in-law is sick, and he goes, and it says he rebukes the fever. 
That word rebuke is just what he did to the demon. No different. Rebukes and it leaves. Once again, Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled. People are being healed. And you can't keep something like this quiet. Soon everybody with a backache, toothache, earache, cancer, paralysis, everybody in the entire town is now coming to Jesus. And He heals them all. But He heals them in a very unique way. Look at verse 40 again. It says, Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them, to, brought them to Him, and He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. And so Jesus, He doesn't just heal them, He lays His hands on them and He heals them. This is completely unique to Jesus. There's no record in the Old Testament of any prophet ever laying hands on anybody to heal them. There's no record in Judaism of anybody laying hands on anybody to heal them. And Jesus didn't have to do it this way. Jesus was the first person to lay hands on somebody and to heal them. And it's very intentional. And Luke wants to make a point to pull this out. I'm sure Luke the physician is, is, is really zeroing in on this. Because it shows a lot about the character and the heart of our God. Here we see the Son of God coming to earth. Not just to heal. He's not just the great physician, but He's our Father. And so He reaches out and He holds each person. Each person comes to Him. I mean, He could have just walked into the town and said, be healed. And He doesn't do that. Instead, he has each person comes to Him He looks them in the eye. He reaches out and He puts His hands on each person. The Creator of the universe, the One who holds the stars in His hands, reaches out and puts His hands on each person and heals them. This should blow you away. This is a very relational God. A God who loves us intimately. And this is why when you know, the Bible it tells us that one day God's going to come and He's going to wipe away every tear from our eye. It doesn't say He's just going to remove pain, but it gets very personal. Yes, all pain, death is going to be gone, and then God is going to come, reach, and wipe. Because that's the kind of God He is. Very personal. Very intimate. Loves us dearly. And I think Jesus is modeling something for His children as well here. He's modeling something for us. You know, it's good and it's right for us to help people. But often I think people in the church can help people without love. We can help people without actually loving people. We can, we can write a check, give it to you know, local ministry, local charity. That's great. It's good. It's needed. And we do that, but there's really very little love in it. There's no personal presence. The gospel is not really communicated to this person. Or we could go and there, there could be a person on the street, you know, asking for money. And, you know, if usually we just try to get away as fast as possible, but, you know, even if we decide to help, usually it's, you know, you pull out your wallet, you give them a dollar, you don't look them in the eye, just kind of give it and move on. And you helped. 
But Jesus would stop and He'd reach out and He'd touch. And I think what Jesus would have us do in a situation like that, if a person comes to you in need, is you stop and you look the person in the eye as a fellow human, as another person who's created in the image of God. Look them in the eye. Asking God, how can I help? How can I give? Making an act of worship. Communicate the gospel and love with a person. You don't just give and give away. You can help and be unloving. We were to help while loving, be loving, being loving. People should feel Christ, not feel shunned when we help them. Once again, we see Jesus fulfilling His mission in Isaiah 61. Now Jesus is going to try to get people to come and to join Him in His mission. Uh, Chapter 5, He calls people to join Him. And it's really interesting the type of people that Jesus chooses. Now all rabbis had disciples. They all had disciples. And and, and a disciple for a rabbi would have to be the cream of the crop. Um, a rabbi would only pick an educated person, one who had really shown themselves to be very astute theologically already, one who had already showed good potential. And Jesus, in all of his fame, I mean, imagine him after healing everybody, saying, I'm now going to pick a disciple. He could have had whoever he wanted, he could have gone to any seminary and any university. He could have gone anywhere and chosen people and said, will you be my disciple? And they would have jumped at it. Let's look at who Jesus chooses to help change the world. Luke tells us that on one occasion, Jesus was teaching and people were pressing all around Him. It's getting hard to teach. So he sees a boat and he, he hops in the boat and it's Simon's. He says, can we kick back a little bit? And so now he's got a buffer and this, this natural podium. And so this boat becomes his pulpit. And he preaches. It's no accident that he got in Simon's boat. This is all part of his call. And when Jesus is done teaching, he tells Simon, he says, put out into the deep. Let down your nets for a catch. I often wonder when he, when he said this, if this would, he would know this was going to be the slogan for at least a thousand youth camps. Like, put out into the deep. This command is ridiculous for a lot of reasons. Um, for starters, Simon grew up fishing. He, uh, he knows fishing. He knows the ins and outs of the lake. He, he knows where the fish like to hide. He knows every, he, I mean, he could do all the fishermen knots. He knows all about fishing. And although he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, even he knows that midday you don't go out and you don't go fishing. But here we have this former carpenter, now a rabbi, he's giving fishing advice. Actually, he's not giving advice. Notice he's not even asking. It's important to notice this. Jesus doesn't say, why don't you do this? No, he actually commands Peter. He commands Peter. He says, go out into the deep. 
And when he says, let down your nets, that let down your nets is a second person plural, meaning he's now addressing the whole crew. He's saying, and you all put out your nets. Peter, take us out. You all put out your nets. He is giving them a command. Which I'm sure they're all looking at Peter going, what do we do? This is a big command. I mean, Peter's going to have to go back to shore. He's going to, you know, he he was drying all the nets. He's going to have to load up the 1,000 pounds worth of nets because he was a deep sea fisherman. And that's how how they would, how much the nets weigh. So he would have to load up the 1,000 pounds of nets, go way out into the deep. They would have to gradually let out these nets as they went into an enormous circle. And they'd have to pull it all in for what he thought was a fruitless effort, only to then go back to land, bring back the nets out, let them all dry. This is an all-afternoon chore that Jesus is asking. Don't think Jesus is saying, hey, just kind of toss that little net off to the side. That's not it. This was a huge demand for a very exhausted person. At first, Peter's a little hesitant. He just kind of gently reminds Jesus, you know we have labored all night. The appropriate time to fish, there were none. But because you told me, we'll go. Seeing that Jesus now is the master. Jesus is the commander. And so he humbles himself before Jesus. He takes an order even though he's the one used to giving the orders. And he does all of this with about this much faith. That much. He doesn't think anything's going to happen. That's it. But it was enough. God can use people who give up control, people who humble themselves, people who are wore out, just tired, and people who have about this much faith. He can use those people for His glory. When they go out there and they let down their nets, they are immediately hit with the catch of a lifetime. It says that so many fish swarmed in that the ropes begin to fray and they're on the verge of breaking. So Peter calls the other boat and says, come on, come come by, we need help to haul in this huge amount of fish. And so they row over and they help and both boats are filled with fish to the point where they're all about to sink. And when Simon Peter sees this, he looks at Jesus and he goes and he falls on his knees. And remember, there's fish all in this boat. And he just gets down on his knees in front of Jesus among all the fish. And he says, depart from me. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Now, seeing the greatness of the Lord, seeing the greatness of anything, has two effects on people. Two effects. One, it makes you want to strive for such greatness. You see greatness and you want to be great. It makes you want to strive for it. But if it's real greatness, you're also aware that you will never, ever achieve it. You want to strive for it, but you know you'll never achieve it. I can remember when I was in high school, I used to love to play basketball. And one time I went to the Omni in Atlanta, when it was still around, to see Dominique Wilkins play basketball, who was one of my heroes. 
And I wanted to see him live. And so I got good seats, and this guy could jump up and take a quarter off the top of a backboard. And he could jump up, and he would jump through the roof, and I was in absolute awe. This was greatness. And when I got back, I was both, man, I was inspired. Man, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to work on my hops, get the pumps. I'm going to do all those things, and you know, you just watch out. And at the same time, I was like, my gosh, I will never, I will never do that. I, I was both inspired and I was crushed at the same time. Imagine Peter. Been a fisherman his whole life and here all of a sudden Jesus is like, hey, just toss it out there and boom, catch of a lifetime. He's both inspired and he's crushed in front of such a man. Because the true beauty of the Lord, it also, it, he is beauty, but his beauty shows your sinfulness. Shows your wretchedness. It terrifies you when you see beauty. Because you realize you are not beautiful. Peter's terrified. Absolutely terrified. This isn't like one of those, you know, touched by an angel moments where people meet God and or like one of those little Hallmark cards. It's, it's not like that. You meet God, there, there, there's this beauty and there's this terror. Jesus tells Peter to not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Now, Peter just caught the catch of a lifetime. He had just reached the absolute height of his professional career. He's risen to the top at this moment. He has never seen so much wealth in front of him that is now his, and it's wealth that God had given him. And he walks away from all of it without hesitation. What we're seeing here is the cost of discipleship. The total cost of discipleship. Everything God has given us. Our families, our homes, our our spouses, our children, our jobs. Everything we lay down at the feet of the One who calls us. It's His. We'll follow Him wherever He leads Let me ask you, do you think Peter, you know, at Pentecost, after experiencing tongues of fire resting upon him, and and Peter rushes out of that room like he's lit on fire, and he preaches, and 2,000 people come to know the Lord, do you think at that moment he is thinking, man, I wish I was still fishing? Gosh, I gave up a lot. Or a couple of chapters later in Acts 4 when when he's just released uh, from in prison and he goes out and he preaches and 5,000 people come to know the Lord. Do you think that he's dwelling on all that he gave up? I'm sure he's thinking back to his initial calling and and that multitude of fish and Jesus saying, hey, you know what? You're going to catch this in men. 
But he realized that his calling now is so much greater than the pathetic dreams he once held. They cannot compare. The task of, that God has given each one of us is greater than, than whatever petty dream that you once held on to. So much greater. He's given us the greatest task in the world. We are fishers of men. We catch people. It doesn't mean like we, you know, sneak up behind, you know, a tree, you know, put a bag over a person's head and like catch them. You know, we, we, we share the gospel and we bring people into the kingdom. We don't drop tracks, you know, that look like $20 bills and try to catch people that way. You know, some poor guy's walking by and he's like, hmm, all right, got dinner. And he's like, oh, crap. And he just sees, you know, two cliffs with a cross bridging the gap between the two. And he's trying to figure out what it means. I don't know of anybody who's been saved that way. Maybe, maybe there has been. Yeah, I grew up hearing this story abused so many, so many times in the church I was at. You know, the, my pastor, he would say, you know, the church, or we got to find as a church, we got to find the hook. We got to find the lure. We got to bring people in. Got to get the hook and the lure, and we got to bring people in. We got to find a way to attract people. And so many times I'd always hear about how the church is supposed to attract people. We're supposed to attract them in. By doing whatever. It's a bunch of crap. It really is. It's a bunch of crap. Don't be fooled. Do not reduce your calling to something so pathetic as that, which is what it is. The church does not need gimmicks to bring people to Jesus or to catch people. What the church needs is humble obedience. What the church needs is to understand the gospel and to actually preach the gospel, which is our net. That's why Jesus is what he's doing is he's acting out a parable. It's the reason he preached from a boat. And he preached from a boat to the masses to bring them in. He's telling Peter, this is what you're going to do. You preach the word. That's your net. And when you preach that, I don't care about your ability. Do you think your ability got you these fish? No. But because you were humbly obedient, you caught them. And when we take the word that God has given us and we get out there and we preach and we are humbly obedient and we work hard at it, we toil at it, and we give our efforts to the Lord, He honors that and He brings in the fish. He saves the souls. Not us. Don't ever think that you have to get your words just right. That your timing, you know, when you present the gospel, it's got to be, oh, it's got to be just perfect. My delivery's got to be perfect. Or it's not going to work. You know, I've got to get cast right, just the right place. It's not how you were saved. I mean, do you really think you were saved because somebody gave the perfect delivery to you? Just the right timing? Just the right attraction? You were saved because of the power of God. You heard the Gospel. God through the Holy Spirit opened up your heart to receive it. Because somebody was obedient enough to share it with you. That's our calling. 
And don't ever think that God cannot use somebody like you. Jesus chose an uneducated, blue-collar worker, rough around the edges, to be the rock of the church. The rock of the church. He'll use whatever weaknesses you have or whatever pathetic strengths you have for His glory. My prayer for us as a church is that we would be people who, uh, who understand the greatness of our calling. That we've been given the greatest task in the world. And it's simply to throw out the nets of the Gospel and allow God to win souls. Pray with me. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. I pray that You bring clarity, conviction, healing. We see in Peter that You do preach good news to the poor. Those who humble themselves before You. I pray that be true of us. Amen. The next time, we, we, we looked at this a couple of months ago, the next time we see G, or Peter in a boat fishing was actually after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. Almost the exact same scenario, except Jesus is not in the boat. He's, he's out on the land and He calls out, Hey Peter, cast out your nets on this side. Peter does, once again, gets this enormous catch. But this time he doesn't say, depart from me. I'm a sinner. He doesn't say that. Even though he had just denied Jesus three times. Instead, he actually jumps in the water, fully clothed, and he starts swimming to Jesus as fast as he can. And it's because he understands what we're about to celebrate. He understood the cross. That yes, he was worse than he could have ever imagined before. But he was also loved and accepted more than he could have ever dreamed. The Gospel enables us to embrace both of those, which is what we celebrate here.